Welcome to episode 168 of The Digital Life, a show about our insights into the future of design and technology. I'm your host, John Follett. This week on the podcast is the second in our special series of episodes put together in conjunction with our friends at the GET Conference on the cutting edge of research science and technology. In this week's episode, we're exploring the topic of the microbiome with interviews with Embriot Hyde and Justine DeBalius of the American Gut Project, as well as Brian Klein of the Forsyth Institute. We're really only beginning to understand the microorganisms that reside in, on, and around us. In the past, it was estimated that we had 10 times more non-human cells than human cells on our body. More recent estimates, however, lower that number to equal amounts of both human and microorganism. And while we have a mutually beneficial relationship with some of the microbiota that colonize us, for some, we just don't understand what that relationship is yet. Let's start with our interview with Embriot Hyde and Justine DeBalius of the American Gut Project. I'm Dr. Embriet Hyde. I am the project manager of American Gut Project at UCSD, University of California, San Diego. And I'm Dr. Justine DeBelius, and I am the analyst on the American Gut Project at UCSD. Wonderful. So tell us a little bit about the American Gut Project and the work you're doing with it. Yeah, so it's a, it's a citizen science microbiome project, basically. So human microbiome research kind of took off with the Human Microbiome Project, which was the first NIH-funded effort to kind of figure out what a healthy human microbiome looks like. And we really realized after that study that it's really hard to define healthy because everybody is so variable. Um, and then that kind of pushed off research. Uh, researchers the world over um, and labs all over the world are looking at, is the microbiome associated with this disease or with that disease or with this factor or with that factor? But one of the things that we need to keep in mind is that to really accurately figure out where the associations are and get some statistical power in there, we need to get a good sampling of the population. We can't just focus on, for example, you know, a population in a single geographical location, which happens sometimes um, with research projects because the funding is limited, right? So you can't like sample a million people because you just don't have the money to do that. Um, and that's what we're trying to do with American Gut is reach out to the citizen science kind of crowdsourced effort where the participants themselves are not only providing samples to us, but also the funding to do the work. And then we can get those sample sizes that we need for statistical power and to make some meaningful connections. That's great. Now, for some of our listeners, even though um, microbiome is a hot term these days in, in the science community, maybe not all our listeners know what the microbiome is. So could you um, explain it in a very basic way. What, what what does that mean? So you are covered in bacteria. That's scary. Well, <laughs> it shouldn't be. It, yeah, they're they're actually your friends. So yeah. your body is able has about seventeen proteins that can break down carbohydrates just in your human genome. Your microbiome, these these bacteria that live in your stomach, can break down about seventeen or have about seventeen thousand ways to break down sugar. So they're helping you digest your food. They're giving you vitamins. Um, they're potentially protecting you against harmful bacteria that are coming in. They can help regulate whether you're obese or lean. Um, they can contribute to autoimmune disease. Uh, there's a whole variety of pathways that they're involved in. Yeah. So, And I like what she said about helping fight against disease because some studies uh, – 
using germ-free animal models. So these are animals that are basically sterile. They have no bacteria in them whatsoever. You can see that their immune system is basically non-existent. And so I think that's a really elegant and powerful way to show that we need these microorganisms in our body or else we just can't function appropriately. And then we may actually succumb to some of those awful diseases that are like such a small percentage of the ones that are actually out there. Now, you mentioned this as part of sort of the citizen science movement. So, of mm -hmm. course, you're looking for all of us to, or as many of us as are willing to contribute. Um, my wife is a scientist, and she, in fact, did contribute to the American Gut Project. And um, I, I found it very interesting, but I wasn't compelled to contribute because I, I found the, the sample submission to be, it exposes me as a little weak stomach, perhaps. So maybe you can explain to our listeners what, what does a sampling look like? And, mm -hmm. and then, more importantly, how do you use that, and how is that vital to the research that you're doing. Yeah, so the sampling process itself, um, it isn't too difficult. I, I know some people get a little queasy because they think, oh, gut, that means, like, do I have to poop in a bucket <laughs> or something like that? And it's really not so bad. Um, we have, it's just a double-headed swab. Um, and if you do want to provide a stool sample, you just swab a piece of used toilet paper. So most people are using toilet paper in the bathroom anyway, I would hope. So it's just that one extra step of just you swab it and then uh, put the swab back in the tube and that's it. For skin and mouth, it's even easier. You know, you're just rubbing the swab. And then uh, is that USPS? It goes through <laughs> the regular mail, yeah. <laughs> we, uh, we provide envelopes that are addressed already for participants to send their samples back. Um, just a regular 92 cent stamp will do it and you can put it through the mail. And you get a lot of data and information from these samples, right? Talk, talk about that and how you translate it into your work. Um, so we get about, is it six million sequences on a, a MySeq run? So on a typical run, we're getting about 40,000 sequences per sample, and we have a, wow. a little over 500 of those each time we run a sequencing run. Wow. <laughs> And then we're able to take those sequences and map them to bacteria um, using a, a reference set of data that's been developed over several years. And then we take that table of information and we take information about the participants and we put those together and we can start to look for patterns and um, sort of trends in the data. So one of the things that we uh, noticed in the data is that we have people tell us about how frequently they drink alcohol. And so do you never drink? Do you drink it, you know, once, less than once a week, once a week up to daily? Mm -hmm. And looking at adults over the age of 21, of course. Um, of course. We were, we were able to find this trend where we saw that the more people drink alcohol, the more types of bacteria they have in their gut. And this sounds sort of scary to some people that more bacteria seems bad. But in fact, we find that in disease states, uh, like inflammatory bowel disease, you have fewer types of bacteria. Hmm. So it kind of makes sense if you think about it a little bit, if you go back to what we were discussing before, like Justine said, the ones that typically live in us can help fight off the pathogens. And so if you have a more diverse community with a lot of different types there, they can do a lot of different things. And the community itself is just a little more robust and able to kind of... Um, experience those potential pathogens in a much healthier way. Uh, they can stand up to it better and fight it off better. So it kind of, you know, if you think about it that way, it does actually make sense uh, rather than the initial thought, which is, ooh, more bacteria, That's, that can't be good. Uh, but it actually really is in the vast majority of cases. <laughs> it's very interesting. 
Now, there's a few themes that are sort of futurist themes that we're interested in that I'd like to ask you about in the context of your work. So um, in terms of human life extension, what are ways in which the microbiome and the research you're doing will contribute to people living longer in the future? That's a that's a really loaded question, actually. Unintentionally. <laughs> yeah, sure. So it's hard to say now uh, because the research is still so young. Mm. But ideally what we would like to do is kind of, I think the best way to think about it is you're creating a map of the human microbiome and you can identify the areas on the map that are bad. You can identify areas that are good. And the key is going to be how do we move from the areas of good to bad or, or bad to good. Um, and of course, you know, if you're moving from the areas of bad to good, you can think, well, health quality is going to be better. Of course, if I get hit by a bus tomorrow, you know, it didn't help. Um, but it's really hard to say like how and in which context, uh, we're going to be able to achieve that because the research isn't there yet. And that's why it's so important that we get more people into the project because the more people we get, the faster we can determine those associations and those connections. I think chronic disease management will also be a big issue. Yeah. So there's some gorgeous work showing that uh, microbial metabolite is associated with cardiovascular disease and uh, sort of like vascular degeneration. So if we can understand which microbes are contributing to that molecule, we can understand how that then, or we can sort of prevent heart disease. In type 1 diabetes, they're finding that there's a point at which your microbiome actually predicts or this is a preliminary study, but it sort of predicts that you see kids who are about to go into full-blown clinical diabetes have a different trajectory in their microbiome than kids who are either healthy or kids who are not in danger of getting the disease, or who are, I'm not phrasing this well, <laughs> in danger of getting the disease, but aren't actually sick yet. Yeah, yeah, so like the yeah. pre-diabetic. You know, and, and if you want to go directly to, you know, actual lifespan um, prediction, just in the absence of chronic disease or any other disease, we do have some collaborators who are really interested in looking at that. Um, and, you know, the work they're doing shows that there is some connection to diet. And we do know that there's a connection between diet and the microbiome. So I think if one day we can make a connection between those two and kind of wrap it together, that would be, that would be awesome um, that, we, that we have and something that we'll be working on in the future. So there's a lot of exciting uh, stuff out there for us to do. Job security, like we're not going to be done with this anytime soon. <laughs> so from a microbiome perspective, and I mean, this is a very serious question. Should I not be using soap when I bathe? Like what, you know, it, it, the, the, the shampoos and detergents and soaps that we have obviously have chemicals that may be deleterious to us. Um, what, what would be the healthiest approach to um, staying um, hygienic while still, you know, being as healthy as possible for the microbiome? Yeah, so we have this whole thing that came out. I don't know if you've heard of the hygiene hypothesis no. at all, but it's a really, um, I think, elegant hypothesis that looks at kind of the lifestyle now in Western countries and how we're just, like, really germophobic, actually. You know, we wash everything kind of like an OCD-type manner, our counters, our houses, ourselves, our kids, our, our animals. And as that change in the way we live occurred, we noticed that, the incidence of some chronic diseases also is increasing. And so the hypothesis is that since we're killing off all of the diversity that, as Justine said, is important for fighting off bad things or making sure our immune system functions correctly, we're actually setting ourselves up to be a more sick society. And so one of the things that we like to say is, you know, don't go overboard. Like, 
you don't have to wash your kitchen counter like every three minutes, you know. Wash it, of course, after you prepare meat on it because we know that meat contains pathogens. Uh, but let your kid go outside and get a little dirty. You know, it's okay if he's playing in the dirt. Um, you don't have to freak out and be like, oh my God, <laughs> he's gonna die. <laughs> so I think it's a balance. You know, obviously washing is good and it serves its purpose, but let's not go crazy with it. You know, let's walk that fine line between um, getting rid of the bad, but also maintaining the good and not hurting the good while we're at it. <laughs> I actually think from a hygiene perspective, another big one is uh, pets. That there was mm -hmm. a, there's a study showing that pets help increase your microbial diversity mm. and that you're, you, if you have a dog, you share more of your bacteria with your partner sort of via your dog than you do if you have an infant. Wow. That's interesting. Now you talked about not going overboard or crazy with the cleanliness. So to, to bring that into like very concrete adult terms, right? Mm -hmm. So anytime I get home, first thing I do is wash my hands. I go into the office, first thing I do is pump out the sanitizer and wash my hands before I start working. Is that on the overboard side or is that on the okay side? Like what what's healthy microbiome behavior? I mean, I guess it depends on what you were doing before you did that, <laughs> right? I, I mean... Again, it's, it's hard to say, and this would be my own personal opinion, so I don't want anybody who's listening to think that this is, you know, uh, what everyone should be doing. But what I tend to do is just, you know, wash before I eat um, or wash before I'm going to be doing something that involves a lot of, you know, if I'm, my hands are going to be near my face. So hand-to-mouth kind of stuff. Yeah, exactly. But um, otherwise, I'm not too frightened about what it is that I'm... <laughs> okay. Fair I mean, enough. Do you have anything to... So you're both here for the GET conference from San Diego. Thank you for making the trip. It's wonderful to have you. What are the things that you're excited to learn about or share in your time here? Um, there are a ton of cool projects here. This is our this is our third year at the conference with American Gut, and it's been amazing to see it grow over the three years. And so there are, there are a lot of really cool projects who come back year after year. Um, it's exciting to to see everything continue to sort of go along. Yeah, I totally agree with that. Um, there's so many awesome projects here and learning about what they're doing, but also seeing the excitement of people who come to the conference to learn about all of the labs also is, is really cool because that's one thing that I think all of us have in common here, regardless of what our project is. And that's getting people excited about science and about the work that we're doing and kind of bringing it out to people and showing people that it's not just something that's only for the PhD scientists who like, you know, went to school for 10 million years. It's like, no, you can help contribute too to what we're doing. And that's really a cool thing. Wonderful. Well, thank you both so much for coming on. Yeah. Thank you thank for having you. us. It was great. Next, we'll hear from Brian Klein of the Forsyth Institute. My name is Brian Klein, and I'm with the Forsyth Institute in Cambridge, Mass. Excellent. So, Brian, what is the kind of work you're doing at the Forsyth Institute? So, at the Forsyth, uh, I'm studying uh, actually indoor track uh, microbiomes and the salivary and nostril microbiomes of athletes that use these indoor environments. Um, the Forsyth Institute studies dental craniofacial um, work in general, and it kind of fit in there with um, the salivary and the nostril work that we were doing. Okay. So when you say indoor, when you said indoor, I, I thought of like an indoor exercise area, but I think you're talking about something different. No. So, uh, actually indoor exercise area. So, um, especially here at this conference, um, a lot of people have studied, 
the microbiome of uh, indoor environments kind of on a healthcare setting, like the hospital microbiome project, there was an office microbiome project. Um, and so they kind of did like the live and work. Um, but no one had ever actually studied how play environments affect the people who use them in, um, in a microbiological, from a microbiological standpoint. Um, so we wanted to be one of the first on that. That's very interesting. So in, in a general way, how, how are these different microbiome environments different? You know, how from work to play to home, what are the characteristics of those differences? Yeah. So um, when you think about how the temperature settings are, are put up, if you think about how the room is lit, um, how large these rooms are, how many people fit into them. So um, indoor tracks, and I'm working specifically in greater Boston right now. Um, and we have four indoor tracks we're studying. And the temperature ranges that I'm seeing, I see as low as 50 degrees, which you would never see in an office environment um, or hopefully a hospital and hopefully not your house, um, to as high as 85 degrees uh, Fahrenheit. And that sometimes it's within the same day. Um, and some tracks are very stable, some are not. Uh, these tracks can fit up to 6,000 people, um, sometimes go standing room to 10,000. So you have like a how many people are you cramming into one room and air exchange cycles would be very different from other indoor environments. And um, my understanding is that the more diverse a microbiome environment is, the healthier it actually is for the individual. Is that, is that correct? Um, so I think we've, the gut is, is extremely diverse. And for the most part, they're seeing when they see a, a non-diverse um, gut, you have most an ailment usually okay um and i think that's where a lot of that thinking comes from but there are definitely niches that are dominated by very few things um and especially with humans so i think we haven't quite explored enough to say that it's it's usually super diverse is good okay um especially because you could have a super diverse weird microbiome um whether or not that's good for you <laughs> yeah do you have do you have um, answers or at least hypotheses of what are the characteristics of healthy microbiome environments from the standpoint of you mentioned temperature earlier, number of people like what are, what what are characteristics of a healthy environment? Yeah, so um, in terms of indoor environments and 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 looking at the the athletic indoor environments, I'm starting to look at um, it would really depend on um, trying to cultivate like a healthy environment, right? And and the you're going to affect what viruses stay around, what what fungi proliferate or even just come in, based on whether or not you um, the temperature would be would be a big factor. Um, also, as been shown in some of the studies so far, opening the windows so mechanical ventilation is huge in terms of what is actually in the air inside your building. Um, if you open the window, it's going to look a lot like what's outside, and so you're not just recirking the air that's that's already in there. Excellent. Well, any last words, things you'd like to share with our audience? Sure. I, I just, I think that um, studying our microbial world is really important and uh, getting participation. So moving from just studying the environment, which we have to study, um, but also studying how the hosts interact uh, with the environment is is where, where I want to go and where I think a lot of the science is going to be moving. So you define these physical places first like whether it's a hospital, it could be the soil. We say what's in the soil, but then the next question to me would be, well, how does the soil, if I'm, you know, digging in the sand, affect me the next day or down the line? Like, do these things change? Because people always talk about like, let your kid play in the dirt. Um, yeah. Well, it might not only be from an immunological standpoint; it could also be from a microbial standpoint. Like, 
changes what's on your skin or changes what's in your mouth if you are really playing in the dirt. <laughs> well, this has really been great. Thank you so much for your time. All right, thank you. Listeners, remember that while you're listening to the show, you can follow along with the things that we're mentioning here in real time. Just head over to thedigitallife.com, that's just one L in the digital life, and go to the page for this episode. We've included links to pretty much everything mentioned by everybody, so it's a rich information resource to take advantage of while you're listening or afterward if you're trying to remember something that you liked. You can find links to the complete interviews and others from the conference in the resources section for this episode. You can find The Digital Life on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Player FM, and Google Play. And if you want to follow us outside of the show, you can follow me on Twitter at John Follett. That's J-O-N-F-O-L-L-E-T-T. And of course, the whole show is brought to you by Involution Studios, which you can check out at GoInvo.com. That's G-O-I-N-V-O.com. So that's it for episode 168 of The Digital Life. I'm John Follett, and I'll see you next time. Thank you.